0: Motto has really been to live as long as possible with the utmost quality of life possible. And one thing I remind my fellow myeloma patients is while avoiding to die, not to forget to live.
1: Welcome to Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I'm Maria Whitman, and this episode is part of our series on the future of healthcare. My guest today is Yalek Baru, who's president and chief executive officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. Yelek joined the foundation after 25 years honing his experience in data and analytics in Fortune 50 companies. He's also passionate about improving the lives of myeloma patients because he's been one himself for almost 28 years. I'm excited to hear his take on the current moment where we have a unique opportunity to empower patients. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me on your prestigious podcast, Maria. Not being in the biopharma world or a biopharma executive, I feel privileged, especially since I am the recipient of the output and impact of biopharma as a 28-year myeloma patient, as you mentioned.
1: Thank you so much for that, Yalik. You know, I, I, I am super excited because I think the perspective you bring from the time we've spent together so far will be hugely valuable to those in pharma as well as in healthcare at large. Well, let's start there. You know, Yalak, you've lived with myeloma for over 28 years now. Can you share your story with us?
0: Sure. I call myself a patient and not a survivor. And sometimes that's controversial because uh, some people say survivorship starts where you are diagnosed. But because myeloma is not curable and I live consistently looking up for when the other shoes is going to fall, and it has multiple times, I call myself uh, a patient. And uh, as an immigrant who came to America with the $200 my parents borrowed, I enrolled in graduate school after getting my computer science degree in Texas. It was during the first semester I was diagnosed with this thing called multiple myeloma. I couldn't look it up at that time, Maria, because it was pre-Google, pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter in 1995. Uh, It was three months back before my 26th birthday, and I was told I would be dead before I turned 30 because all the data at that time showed an average survival of two or three years.
1: Yeah, like I can't even imagine that. You were so young and had so much that you needed to do and wanted to do ahead of you.
0: It was also uh, for me uh, somewhat difficult because it was the first time in my life that I saw my father cry. And the only time in my life that I I saw uh, my father cry and uh, it gave me the result that says, if anybody can live with and potentially fight multiple myeloma, it is me. And I was almost privileged to take this on on behalf of my family uh, and go through the high dose chemotherapies at that time followed by high dose chemotherapy. The treatment was then a four day continuous infusion along with 40 milligrams of steroid each day, four days on, four days off, four days on, four days off, continuously for six months. What's interesting, Maria, is at that time, earlier that summer, the FDA had just approved the use of an at-home infusion pump to allow patients to be mobile and they did not have to be hospitalized, which allowed me to not miss a single day of school while going through chemotherapy, And at the conclusion of that six months, I achieved a stringent complete remission. I collected my stem cell for an autologous stem cell transplant, but I opted not to do a stem cell transplant because I started asking questions: is there data to support improvement in quality of life? If I go through a stem cell transplant, would the outcome be better or would I have an overall survival? And the answer to all of that was no, And so if I'm going to die before 30, I really wanted to be as educated as possible before I died, and I opted not to go through a stem cell transplant and finish school.
1: Wow, you made the decision to live your life in that moment as opposed to following protocol that had been established for a long time. Yes, and I think that came
0: from me attending a support group. Uh, A few months after I was diagnosed, I went to the North Texas Myeloma Support Group. I saw people that looked like me, uh, had a similar educational background, that were smart, uh, that have navigated the journey much more successfully than I was uh, starting to uh, navigate my journey. And as a result, I was really uh, able to make or be part of that shared decision-making we advocate for right now. So I have been, I have seen really the, Crustone Age of Myeloma Treatment and what I call the Space Age of Myeloma Treatment. As you know, CAR-T uh, uh, was introduced for the treatment of multiple myeloma a little over uh, a year ago. Uh, and if you told me at that time that we'll be able to harvest someone's T-cells, take them to a laboratory, re-engineer them, train them to treat myeloma and give them back, I'll tell you it is science fiction. But I think that the future is here.
1: Yeah, that science fiction analogy does hold, but it's had such a huge impact for so many patients with myeloma now, this this type of technology uh, that we're trying to push through the healthcare system to be more standard.
0: Yeah, it has. And my motto has really been to live as long as possible with the utmost quality of life possible. And one thing I remind my fellow myeloma patients is while avoiding to die, not to forget to live. And so the Treatment advances that have come to the market over the last 25 years are allowing patients like me to be able to integrate myeloma into their life and not have to live with myeloma but Maria since you are also a numbers person let me give you one sobering number two from 1995 to 2000 there were 100 family members that joined the international myeloma uh, support group the North Texas myeloma support only two of us are alive today. As, as much progress as we have made, myeloma continues to be incurable and deadly. Uh, so I feel really fortunate to be alive uh, almost 28 years after my diagnosis and indebted to those 98 patients, and I want to pay it forward.
1: I was just gonna say, you know, you are paying it forward. Um, you know, for a long time, you played a very strong role as a patient advocate, um, not only speaking to other patients, but, you know, being on advisory boards for for those who are in the system trying to create advancements, um, and now as a board member for the International Myeloma Foundation and, and its president and CEO. So, you know, I think this this balance of education and living life, this balance of treating the disease and yet still being who you are and trying to do that for as long as possible, you've got, you've developed over that time some perspectives on what does it really mean to empower patients? When you're an advocate out there telling them how to empower and put them at the center, how does healthcare need to change to really do that? What is what is empowering patients and what do we have to do differently?
0: Yeah, no one in my experience says when I grow up, I'm going to get cancer or some other rare disease and I will become a patient advocate. That is never people's aspiration. I became one really to pay it forward as I stood on the shoulders of many that came before me. I still feel I'm really not an advocate, but someone who is part of a relay race and I'm just carrying the baton uh, from the person that came before me and I'm going to uh, respectfully carry it forward and give it to the person uh, that's going to uh, come after me but but i have really been privileged to have mentors in the world of advocacy who have shown me what it means to be a good advocate uh patient empowerment really will mean different things to different individuals or different family members it is personal it changes over time and it is different in various junctions of a patient journey
1: I hadn't thought of it this way, Yelik, but I love this imagery of a baton, Uh, patient advocacy being a journey that's never over. And the really interesting part of that is because, as you say, empowerment itself and and the journey itself is different things to different people. Uh, Those who become advocates and pick up that baton, they'll also look at it from different perspectives, see a new opportunity and a new way to affect it. So it's a beautiful, a beautiful thought, and I'm really glad you're on this journey now. Um, so so tell me a little bit more about what, you, in your experience, does patient empowerment really mean?
0: In my experience, uh, patient empowerment means, do patients have the education they need to navigate their journey? Do they have the tools to be part of the shared decision-making process with their care team that I mentioned earlier? Do they feel connected to have the physical, the emotional, and psychological comfort they need? To navigate their myeloma journey? Do they have the means to overcome obstacles that come their way related to treatment and side effects?
1: So, what I hear you describing, Yelek, is understanding the personal context in many, many more angles than just the disease. It's about who they are from all degrees in order to truly empower them and give them the confidence that they need on that journey.
0: So, Data is really critical in personalizing experience for each patient in a respectful and secure way. Uh, This personalization has to be based on the patient's level of health literacy, their stage of the disease and disease type, their relapsed status, are they newly diagnosed or relapsed and relapsed refractory, their ability to access care, their health related social needs, which doesn't get talked a lot about. We have to really also, Maria, in my opinion, be able to hyper-individualize information and patient education. In order for us to do that, we have to create a patient 360 and look at the full patient ecosystem, not just look at the patient as a carrier of myeloma, but the patient as part of uh, the bigger uh, societal ecosystem, if you would.
1: I couldn't agree more. And actually, this is why you and I were actually brought together, I think, Yella, can introduce to each other, because we have this common vision between us that um, data and the tools that we now have from a technology and an AI perspective can really lead to personalized empowerment at scale of patients, of the decision makers related to their diseases, you know, of of the full ecosystem of people who are part of that, you know, uh, expansive uh, uh, ecosystem journey or patient journey um, in myeloma and also in other diseases. And this is is what's been so fascinating to me about your transition, right, from where you came from in Fortune 50 companies like Walmart now into IMF, and you've been carrying not only this vision, but now this kind of view of what do we need to do differently as even a nonprofit organization <laughs> to 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 drive that vision to reality, because it because there is a role to be played with it, with an organization like IMF. So, kind of two questions for you: one is, talk a little bit about that transition, right? Transition from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world, and 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 how has that affected you know how you're thinking about the vision for IMF today.
0: Yeah, at higher level, the way you measure impact in most cases in the for-profit world is by quarterly profit. Yes, you do have ESG metrics and other related community impact measures, but the major measure is financial outcome. In the nonprofit world, the mission attainment and impact is what we measure outcome by in most cases. The other thing is that is slightly different with nonprofits is most have Personal connection with the organization's mission. And the way you motivate people is different. It is not necessarily yearly or quarterly bonus, but people work in the nonprofit world mostly because they align with the why of the mission. They want to build relationships at a personal level and they want their voice to be heard. So if you told me that at some point I would have transitioned from a for profit to a nonprofit world and leave the world of data and analytics, if you would. Uh, I would have said, I don't think that would happen. But I also see what patients want from the biopharma or the nonprofit organizations like the IMF. It's very similar to what customers of a retail giant like Walmart or our innovative CPG company like PepsiCo want. They want awesome products and they want differentiating services. Uh, They want brand equity, if you would. At Walmart, our brand was save money, live better, highlight the low price so people can live a better life. At PepsiCo, it was performance with purpose to highlight innovation and positive impact on society. Here at the International Myeloma Foundation is improving the quality of life of myeloma patients while working to cure uh, multiple myeloma. So that brand is really important and carries regardless of if you are a for-profit or a non-profit world. But as important, uh, Maria, is the personalized experience. Treat patients as individuals by understanding their preferences and previous interactions with you. So the next interaction is a built on, not a little relearning of their experiences that they have had. Uh, It is important for us to unify the patient experience, like retails and CPG unify the customer experience. Uh, I I kind of interchange those because patients are sometimes or most times the customers as well uh, in the retail and CPG world. So ensuring a unified and seamless experience across all channels is really important. It is not easy in in the context of healthcare because Hospitals are different from pharmacy, different from the doctor, different from the laboratory, I end up going. Uh, So this is very difficult uh, as a biopharma uh, does not always have access to the patient directly. Highlighting, in my opinion, the need to collaborate, share information and try to solve this uh, problem uh, in a meaningful and respectful way for the the patient community. Uh, So we really need to be able to incorporate the voice of the patient. Inside the organization, advocating for patients' needs and building brand trust uh, for us at the IMF. This means we need to provide this unified experience on the web, in person, over the phone, and throughout the patient journey and their interactions with us throughout their myeloma journey uh, in attaining our mission of uh, curing multiple myeloma.
1: I think first and foremost, your comparison to retail is real because at the end of the day, we are people and we are experiencing in life personalization like we've never had on on things that, you know, at the end of the day are not as important as our health. You and I have talked about, you know, your unique situation as a young person suddenly diagnosed trying to figure out information is very different even than someone else in the same disease state, but is in a, a completely different set of circumstances. And we have to be able to help the individual for where they are and who they are. Um, I think as we as we think about um, the biopharma world in particular, you know, we're in this moment where it is more than just the HCP that we need to be talking to as our customer. And as I think more and more about a lot of these disease states engaging and involving customers at every stage, whether it's R&D or whether it's even in that decision making, should I or should I not do a stem cell transplant? That's That's really important. One of the things that's held us back, though, is it's really hard to personalize, right? It's really hard. And we have a lot of data collection, but not necessarily data connection. And and then when we get it, you know, how do we actually scale it? Um, you know, we've gotten to segments, but do we how do we actually get to more of an N equals one type experience? And so one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about from a data and technology perspective is, you know, we can't can't go without saying generally AI is the hot topic right now. <laughs> There's lots of tools and technologies that held a lot of promise to make what is a challenge of scale easier so we can deliver this for patients. You know, tell me about your perspective on how these are evolving and how should we be incorporating them? How should you at IMF, how should pharma be incorporating them to support patients?
0: Yeah, the the answer to that may not be uh, the answer I or you expect or want. Uh, AI has been around for many decades. When I went to school, many years ago, I had a textbook called Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach, and the book was published in 1995. Uh, what has changed really is the underlying technology. As GPUs, cloud computing, and now quantum computing become available, they have accelerated the the and catapulted, in my opinion, AI to the forefront. I think one thing we have to agree on is the use of technology and healthcare is not about the technology itself. I heard this term many years ago, and uh, it still resonates with me. Data and technology is to allow us not to decide late or judge too early. So the underlying technology and methodology may change, but the purpose still remains the same. To aid patients, humans, to make decisions. But as you said earlier, to make decisions at scale. Uh, This has been true also for traditional BI tools and systems uh, that talk about, you know, in the old days, reporting, analysis, monitoring, prediction. Uh, Then came the age of big data, now AI and generative AI. We have to transform how we think of AI systems uh, from being able to get answers quickly to helping us formulate the next set of questions we should ask them.
1: That is an amazing twist in perspective. Um, And and if I think about that, coming back to you as a patient and thinking from a patient lens, if we can help them ask the questions better, there's no better source of empowerment.
0: I completely agree with you, uh, Maria. Uh, And I really think the power of AI comes, how do we teach these tools together to create awesome patient experience? For us, as a nonprofit organization, and who has direct engagement with the patient, it really means being able to create a myeloma knowledge platform that will enable us to have a 360-degree view of the patient and constituents we serve, so we can personalize their engagement experience and provide a value-add service. We know who the patients are: are they a smoldering myeloma patient or a high-risk uh, relapsed refractory myeloma patient? Based on that we can actually tell them, have you talked about X, Y, Z? Or people that ask that question also ask this question, allowing us really to be able to hyper-personalize, provide nudge, uh, provide next best action, uh, really be a true decision consultant uh, through held up AI systems.
1: This is a a very sophisticated vision um, beyond uh you know, where I think many nonprofits have been because of where, you know, just where we are in connecting patients and trying to be supportive in bringing some education. I mean, this is this is taking it from, we can do that, but we can do that uh, really understanding who you are and you using all the latest behind to give you exactly what you need and, and then help drive those decisions. Yeah, like the sophistication of this vision shouldn't go unnoticed. I mean, you know, Nonprofit organizations do a lot of wonderful things in support of patients and the decisions they need to make, connecting them, providing education. But what you're talking about is really taking advantage of everything we have available to um, be uniquely supportive to each individual patient. Biopharma can't do that in the same way, right? Like they they can't directly talk to patient in the same way, but they can support this sophisticated vision in, in designing and developing and, and being that central place for patients. So tell me a little bit about how biopharma should be thinking about supporting you in that journey.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Maria, uh, and uh, acknowledging uh, the, the grandness of our vision. I think biopharma can really engage in three areas, in my opinion. Biopharma can engage with organizations like us by helping us provide personalized experience to the patient. This N equals to one that we all talk about. This requires that you treat me as an individual versus a clinical trial cohort, right? You know me as me and are able to personalize information, personalize treatment, and engage me in ways that are relevant to me. Meet me where I am. And a really good example, you and I have talked about this uh, in the past, is there is an African-American doctor in Michigan who consulted a Native American patient and the Native American patient said, that is great, but I can't take that treatment unless my chief approves. The doctor said, bring your chief. He was able to have a conversation with the chief and convince him and he became basically the head consultant for that tribe as a myeloma expert. The challenge we have and we need to continue to think through is how do we scale that up? The second one is teaching patients to tell their stories in a meaningful way. Me getting on stage and telling my story of I am a 28-year myeloma patient, I have not had a transplant, I can assure you has a much higher impact than the Determination Clinical Trial that compared transplant versus non-transplant patients over half a dozen years and found no evidence of overall survival Absolutely. in the transplant Absolutely,
1: arm. Absolutely.
0: One of the prominent uh, myeloma experts, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar uh, of the Mayo Clinic, he's a co-chair of the ECOG. Uh, uh, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group clinical trial uh, arm, and he's the incoming chair of the International Myeloma Foundation as well. He has a pinned on his Twitter page. who He has over 70,000 followers. He said, I would like to share the story of how a patient with cancer came up with the idea for a randomized clinical trial and how listening to him saved lots of lives. And he talks, the he tells the story of my cat, who was one of my mentors, who challenged them to debunk, if you would, the myth that high-dose steroid was important in improving uh, quality of life of myeloma patients. So as a result, they were able to design a clinical trial and found out that low-dose steroid was actually more efficient, efficacious, uh, more tolerated, and uh had less side effects in the patients. So that to me is being able to create citizen data scientists that truly changed the trajectory of myeloma treatment. And biopharma really needs citizen scientists to engage with them from R&D all through marketing of their product.
1: I really want to underscore that there's a red thread in everything you just said um, that I think is so important for, for uh, colleagues in the ecosystem to hear. We talk about patient at the center all the time, that's why we're here. But when we talk about patient at the center and even when we bring patients into the center of our thinking, it's not to the actionable way you were just describing, I think in the everyday world, right? Understanding the drivers, the chief needing to be a part of that journey in order to really make it happen. Citizen scientists, it's not just about hearing what patients need in a clinical trial, it's having them be part of the design. I, I think this is this is a really, really important part of meet me where I am. And you know, the the second part of that red thread and something that I, I think is so important for us to spend a few minutes on is that the meet me where I am is so heterogeneous and diverse, and in particular, we have uh, what is a wonderful, glowing recognition of health equity uh, and and the drivers of health, uh, the determinants of health in in our system now. But you know, we did a global study with Harris Poll over the last few years, the S and Harris Poll, and and you know, of nine thousand consumers, nearly half of them say they feel the healthcare system doesn't care about me personally, and in two thirds across. Six countries, elect. They say the system does not treat everyone fairly, and so so we systemically believe somehow healthcare isn't leaning in to equity. And then you start talking about an n equals one experience. You know we have a long way to go, but that trust that individual, we we have to keep keep working towards n equals one if we really want equitable and effective care. Do you agree?
0: Absolutely. You know, that that inequitable distribution of innovation you talked about, resources and care, which leads to health disparities is evidenced in many different ways, Maria. Uh, in myeloma, for example, the amount of time it takes to diagnose myeloma is huge because diagnosis is complex, uh, but also because there is implicit bias in the system. Uh, the lack of clinical trial participation in people of African descent. Uh, Lacks account for 20% of myeloma population but they only account low single digit percent participation in FDA approved uh, uh, clinical trial the average myeloma patient sees their primary doctor three times with symptoms and signs consistent with multiple myeloma the delay is a little longer in african americans for many reasons because of co-founding diagnosis like diabetes but also lack of access to diagnostics and care, lack of awareness in the primary care providers, and lack of timely referral uh, to specialists. So there should be a concerted effort to address that in the myeloma patient and uh, at a community level. Sometimes we worry so much about scalability, we forget the power of the community. In order for us to build trust, we have to take both what I call a bottoms up and tops down, but also local, national, and uh, global approach. So one of the initiatives we have here at the International Myeloma Foundation is called Empower. Uh, word play on Empower. Empower is a project that focuses on community partnership, education, mentorship programs, and enhancing workforce diversity with both local and national uh, approach. That these efforts involve really collaborating with local communities, conducting tailored educational programs. The need for a diversity training in Charlotte is different than the need for a diversity training or the type of training we end up providing in the Atlanta area. So that hyper-personalization, not only at the individual level, but also the community level is really important. Data shows that if you end up being treated by a doctor or healthcare provider that looks like you, your outcome is better. So, what we have also standard, uh, started, uh, sorry, the mentoring minority medical students, where we partner medical students that are minorities with met, uh, mentors in the field of multiple myeloma. So, hopefully, they will end up choosing multiple myeloma uh, as one of the uh, diseases that they will end up. Uh, uh, specializing in. So promoting diversity among healthcare professionals is really as important as promoting diversity in the patient community. One other uh, trait I want to uh, double-click uh, in Maria is about 80% of myeloma patients get diagnosed in the setting of a community physician. And this physician treats 13 other cancers and myeloma is one of those 13 other cancers. As we have over almost 20 drugs that have been approved for the treatment of myeloma, I don't know if I want to go to a, a specialist or a person who treats 13 other cancers and not just multiple myeloma. So, our ability to provide timely information and education to the community care physician is really important in helping address the unmet need of the myeloma patient and the unmet need of. Uh, diversity uh, in access and ensuring that the their algorithmic treatment guidelines for newly diagnosed and initial relapsed uh, multiple myeloma patients, for example, is available to the community physician is one way of being able to address the health inequity that we will end up seeing as more and more drugs become available. And as you see more and more cellular therapies become available, I have to go to The university centers and not the community centers, in order for me to get the cellular therapies.
1: What's so interesting is the challenge of inequity is a system wide end to end problem. And everything you just described is we have to attack it at every phase from the moment physicians are getting trained to every new release of every drug and data piece in the market, to the referral systems embedded in how we get patients at the right time to the right locations to get the best treatment possible. But at the end of all this, you know, there's change the paradigm, which we need to do, but that takes time. That takes a a a mountain of effort. It takes a village uh, of of not only nonprofits, but the whole ecosystem standing together to do that. And we will do that in pockets, but It almost feels that going back to where you started, which is empower the individual is the quickest way to have impact because it's that individual sitting in that rural part of Texas who suddenly becomes empowered to figure out themselves. I need to find the specialist. I need to make a decision and I need to understand more about transplant or no transplant and I need to figure out what's the next step for me. That's really the quickest way we can all rally together uh, to navigate any one patient's survival.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah, like um, we talked a little bit about where pharma can support in the vision, um, but you've talked about a broad range of things that we need to consider about who patients are, about empowering them, about changing the system. If I step back and said, just what's your one most important piece of advice for biopharma executives today, what would it be? Really
0: is anchoring to what we talked about early, which is patient centric approach. Understand what that means to you. Personalize it as a, as a company, make it part of your mission. Uh, and if you need to create, for example, a weekly, a monthly, a quarterly patient day where you say, does what we do add value to the patient that we will end up serving? I, I really think is, uh, a really great uh, point to start, and if you allow me to digress for a minute. When at PepsiCo, I went into uh, a route salesperson's ride ride along, and at the end of the day, the the route salesperson asked me, "So you see what I do here? Can you tell me how what you do adds value to what I do?" I was as a data scientist, as an analyst, and who was really uh all that saying, a technologist person, I struggle to answer that question. And my ask to the biopharma executives and the people within each of those biopharmers, ask how what you do adds value to the patient that you end up interacting with.
1: When your patients turn to you as head of IMF and say, what value are you adding to me and my journey? What do you hope they're going to say?
0: You put a warm blanket around me when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. You gave me the information I need in a timely manner. You cared for me in a compassionate way. You treated me as a human being and not another uh, myeloma patient or a carrier of uh, myeloma. And you allowed me to live with myeloma and not for myeloma.
1: I guess just coming back full circle, you started with your story and you just told me what you would love um, others to say to you in return. You know, maybe, maybe. Uh, how how close to that vision are we? Have we have we made huge steps since that day twenty eight years ago when you became a patient?
0: I am not n equals one. When it, you look at long term survivors, there are many many long term survivors. I have. A mentor who is a year ahead of me, who's like 29 years, and I have many other patients that I know that are in the teens and 20-year survival rate. So we have come a humongous amount of way, if that is a measurable uh, metrics a humongous amount of way from when I was diagnosed. But we have as much way to go because as someone who came from. Uh, Ethiopia at a young age and lived here and you and I will not be having this conversation today if I lived in Ethiopia. Not because you know I I was out exploring other parts of Ethiopia because I would be dead. Uh, The inequity in healthcare, the inequity in advancements of the outcomes of and the outputs of healthcare being accessible in other parts of the world even in parts of the U.S., is humongous. So as much as we have come a long way, we have a long way to go.
1: We have a long way to go in a global world where everybody needs to be an N equals one. That's wonderful. And you made the point earlier that while there are many uh, who are now reaching that 28, 29 year threshold, there's Thes 98 that you experienced and many, many more that we've lost along the way. And so I, I think that this is this is just further drive for us to keep doing our best um, throughout. Yelek, um one more question that I ask all my guests. Um, can be anything you want it to be, but if you could change one thing about healthcare, what would it be?
0: Yeah, that is uh you know, giving me one coupon and asking me to change the world. But I really like your question and it comes back to that experience and personalization we talked about. I want my Monday morning healthcare experience to look like my Sunday evening, Netflix, Amazon banking experience.
1: That is amazing. That is amazing. Um, And and from someone who's experienced both sides of the coin uh, and telling the world and telling biopharma and the healthcare system, it's possible. I, I think that's, that's a great goal. like thank you so much for joining me today. Um, for all our listeners, this has been another episode of Transforming Biopharma by ZS. I invite you to subscribe and leave an iTunes review. And to learn more about ZS's connected health research, visit zs.com slash future of health. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.